0: Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Jacob Machamgama. Jacob is a lawyer and writer based in Denmark. He's the founder of Justitia, a think tank focused on human rights and freedom of speech. And he's the producer and narrator of the excellent podcast called Clear and Present Danger. Jacob and I discuss his excellent new book, Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media. We talk about the Danish cartoon controversy and Charlie Hebdo. We talk about so-called Milton's curse, which is the habit of hypocritically defending free speech for some but not for others, and I think this point is relevant to some of the bans that we've been seeing on Russian state news. We talk about the notion of power relations and its relationship to free speech. We discuss the relationship between censorship and human nature. We talk about the importance of having a culture of free speech in addition to having laws that nominally protect it. We talk about the origins of what Jacob calls egalitarian free speech in ancient Athens. We discuss the First Amendment and its evolving interpretation over time. We talk about the alleged exceptions to protected speech, such as hate speech or shouting fire in a crowded theater. We talk about whether censorship actually works. We talk about big tech companies and their role in censoring speech. We discuss similarities between the rise of the printing press and the rise of the internet. We discuss cancel culture. We talk about the threat to free speech posed by China and the CCP, and much more. This was one of my favorite conversations that I've had so far this year, and I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, Jacob Machamgama. Okay, Jacob. Thanks so much for coming on my show.
1: Thanks for having me. Uh, really been looking forward to it. And uh, once again, congratulations on your uh, new video, uh, aptly themed and named Blasphemy, which is, of course, central in the history of free speech.
0: Yeah, we're actually recording this one day after that video dropped, and that was actually not on purpose. It's just a happy coincidence. And we're going to be talking about your book today, Free Speech from Socrates to Social Media, which, um, let me just say, it's it's an amazing achievement, this book. It's its really, it's aptly timed. It's deep. It's thorough. It's written beautifully. Uh, it's just a great example of how to do this kind of book that traces the history of an idea, an important idea, traces the history of its defenders, its attackers, all the way from ancient Greece to today. So we're, we're not going to be able to go over all or even most of the book, but
1: I don't know how much time you have, but uh, <laughs> that might take uh, a few hours.
0: Yeah, but it's just re- it was really incredibly fun and useful to read. So congrats on that. So before we get into it, can you tell uh, my audience a little bit how you came to be interested in this idea and your academic background and where you're from and all that?
1: Yeah, so I was born and raised in uh, cozy, liberal, secular Denmark. My father is from the Comoros Islands in, in East Africa. My mother's Danish. But, but I was born and raised in sort of uh, a place where for most of my life, Free speech was as natural as as breathing air. Most people took it for granted. And I didn't really have to fight for it or anything. And then in 2005, Denmark suddenly became sort of the epicenter of a global battle of values between the relationship between, over the relationship between religion and free speech. Because a Danish newspaper called Jules Posten published some cartoons depicting the, the Muslim prophet Muhammad. And that set off a chain reaction leading to basically a, a conflict that has not yet been resolved, but, but leading to death and terrorism And a lot of soul searching in a a liberal secular country like Denmark, where poking fun at religion was sort of almost second nature. But then suddenly a lot of the sort of erstwhile defenders of secular enlightenment values came to sort of have second thoughts about the value of free speech, because suddenly they saw these cartoons as punching down on a vulnerable minority. And that was not what free speech was all about. And so. Uh, Some people thought that free speech is important, but it should be used for specific purposes and not uh, other specific purposes. And uh, whereas I came to this, came to think about this, the idea of free speech and the value of free speech as something which belongs to us all as a basic fundamental human right, and that no one can have, whether they are part of a, a minority or a majority, whichever way you want to define it, you cannot say, well, because we have these ideas, we want to have a taboo um, that other people must respect. And if they're not respected in law, you have to be willing to pay the ultimate price because some people might uh, be so pissed off as to use violence. Or And basically, I also thought that there was a certain sense of the bigotry of lower expectations in the idea that Muslims uh, living in Denmark, enjoying all the the freedoms that we have in Denmark should be thought of as less deserving of free speech than anyone uh, else. That conflict is still ongoing. Unfortunately, a lot of people uh, around the world still live with around-the-clock security. The whole Charlie Hebdo affair would not have taken place if Charlie Hebdo had not republished the Danish cartoons. So that was sort of my entry into the whole debate about free speech. But what I also found is something... Which in my book I call Milton's Curse, and, and may, we may get, get back to why that is. But that free speech is a wonderful, you know, it's, it's something which appeals to a lot of people when it supports your underlying ideology and ideas. It's a wonderful principle to appeal to, but it's much less appealing when, when exercised by people whose ideas you loathe. And so a lot of people on the right during the cartoon crisis in Denmark said free speech is absolute, you know because they basically saw it as Muslims attacking Danish values. A lot of people on the left were sort of queasy about free speech because they saw free speech as attacking a vulnerable minority. But then suddenly, due to terrorism and so on, center-right Danish governments adopted a number of laws that were basically aimed at Muslim extremists, but that curtailed religious free speech of Muslims. And then suddenly those on the right who had said free speech is absolute said, well, maybe free speech is not that important when... You know, when we're actually trying to defend national security, whereas people uh, on the left who had felt queasy about free speech with the cartoon said, well, this is where free speech has to stand uh, its ground. (laughs) Unfortunately, it's quite rare. To have people uh, who have a principled defense of free speech, and I think ultimately that's what is needed for free speech to really thrive: is a culture of free speech. I don't think you can have strong legal protections of free speech unless you have a critical mass of the population who acknowledge and are willing to stand up for the idea that people with whom you fundamentally disagree about how what the good society should look like, uh, fundamental first values, first principles—you know—that they also have a right to to speak them. Minds. So that was a long fly into what got me sort of started into free speech. And unfortunately, so I've been into free speech for more than a decade. And and, and unfortunately, Throughout that period, there's been what I would call a free speech recession. So even though in many ways we live in a golden age of free speech compared to previous ages and, and you know, free speech, speech is everywhere, I would say that the legal protection and its cultural foundations are in decline. And so that's why I, in my book, free speech is absolutely central to the values that I believe in, sort of free, democratic, egalitarian society, um, innovative, scientific. I don't think that kind of society is possible without free speech. So if free speech, if I'm right, that free, we're in a free speech recession, the consequences of that could be dire.
0: So a lot of places to go from there. But I guess I'll just start here with this Milton's curse phenomenon, which is you define in the book as, as a selective and unprincipled defense of free speech, free speech when it's convenient for you. I think that the concept of free speech is often not taught in exactly the right way. I think when you teach the concept, you should put at the forefront that the whole point is to defend speech that you don't like a speech that strikes you, whatever your values are as harmful. It shouldn't feel good to defend free speech all the time right if it if it always feels good, that's a sign that you're only defending the free speech of people that you fundamentally agree with. It should feel a little bit uncomfortable sometimes, and I would liken it to the feeling of sort of giving someone an apology that you know they deserve, but you really don't want to give, right? Like you have that defensive feeling of like, oh, fuck them, I don't want to apologize, but you know deep down that you ought to apologize and it doesn't totally feel good to do so, but you do it anyway, hopefully. That's the feeling you should sometimes have defending the free speech of people. Like You should sometimes find the people whose speech you're defending detestable, or else you're not really holding up free speech.
1: You basically have to do a lot of uh, holding your nose and especially in democracies and open democracies where free speech is is protected because those that test the limits of free speech in open democracies that are based on on tolerance will will very likely be people whose ideas are are loathed and sometimes for for very good reason. It's obvious that if you were an American in the South in the 50s and 60s, you would feel incredibly empowered by the idea of free speech when you were standing up for the civil rights movement who were being attacked by American apartheid, by police officers with dogs. But then fast forward to 2017 and you're in Charlottesville and you have uh, guys uh, standing in Ku Klux Klan hoods spouting bona fide white supremacist ideas, then suddenly it doesn't feel very good defending the very, you know, free speech becomes very abstract principle at that point, because you could not be more in disagreement with those people. I think in many ways, it's a difficult concept for human beings, because sometimes it just feels, you know, our brains are not naturally wired to be tolerant all the time. And when we sense that certain ideas are dangerous, our first instinct is not to defend them and say, oh, it's absolutely important that this guy or these persons have the right to spout uh, these ideas. Uh, Our natural inclination might be to say towards tolerance and say, these are dangerous ideas. We have to shut them down. And so that's an impulse that if you're into free speech, you have to fight that impulse all the time.
0: You end your chapter on the medieval inquisition with a quote that I really liked that conveyed this point about human nature. The machinery of persecution put in place by the medieval Inquisition has been updated and recycled many times over the centuries by both religious and secular regimes. Its underlying impulses may well be hardwired into human nature, lying in wait for the right moment to establish new orthodoxies and seek out fresh heresies. This really comes through in your book because the urge to censor and... Punish blasphemers has been so ubiquitous throughout human history. In the past 20 years, as you noted, there's been this huge clash between radical Islam and the West on these in this issue of free speech. But zooming out throughout history, depending on the time that you're talking about, the cradle of free speech or, or the worst offenders with with regard to blasphemy and heresy have been at times Europe, you know, at, at times it's been the Arab world. It, it's been sort of everywhere and it's been changing and the locus of free thought has has been changing and free speech has always sort of been the underdog for the most part. It's only been the norm in a small part of the world for a pretty small amount of time. And, um, and I do think this, this impulse of sort of punching down and, and punching up being a limiting factor on, on free speech is, I think, the, probably the most potent force right now against free speech, which is this totally understandable sense that you should be using your free speech to make the world a better place. And if you are bullying the weak with it, then I have no, really no drive to protect your speech. But I think the part of the problem with this is that whether you're punching up or punching down depends on the resolution of your microscope, really, like how zoomed in, how zoomed out you are. So if the picture you're looking at is Muslims in Europe, where Muslims are a minority, many have arrived recently, many don't speak the language of the country they're in, many of these countries have don't have a long history of assim, assimilating foreigners, you can understand what the balance of power is at that level and feel that you're protecting the underdog by protecting the speech of Muslims or, or protecting the sort of sensibilities of, of Muslims in Europe. At the same time, if you look at it, the same picture, at a different resolution, you can describe the situation as the world's second largest religion, You know, practically very close to the world's largest religion, which has a minority within it, women women, not not a minority of women but a minority of gays certainly lgbtq people free thinkers atheists who would very much benefit from the ability to criticize the quran and criticize islam in the same way that people in the in the christian and post christian parts of the world are clearly benefited by the ability to criticize ideas in the bible so looked at that way, the the logic of who's punching up and who's punching down totally inverts. And you can do that a million times over and it's never really clear who's punching up and who's punching down.
1: And you are at the most fundamental level, you know, when you're pointing an AK-47 at someone who's sitting with a pen drawing cartoons, power relationship is always going to be at the level of the guy holding the AK-47. But I totally agree with that. So there are, as you mentioned, there are a number of Muslim majority countries in the world where unfortunately, even though, as I tried to point out in the book, there's a long history of, of some free thought in the Arab world and certainly one of great philosophy that helped spark the important intellectual developments in the west but currently you know it's very difficult to find a muslim majority country that where where free speech is on the par with this, say in western europe and particularly blasphemy laws tend to be quite strict there are actually a number of countries where formally at least you can be punished with death for for blasphemy or uh, apostasy and it's clear that in those countries being a non-muslim or being a muslim with heterodox views is it makes you the one with less power but even within the west so there are also people who who are from muslim majority countries who may be heterodox muslims living in the west or who are uh, not no longer muslims who no longer believe and should they right to criticize religion the way they see fit be curtailed in defense of the majority of the minority. so so you always have these minorities within uh, the minorities, and so that's why um, I think someone like Frederick Douglass was absolutely spot on when it came to free speech, because he both saw it as especially important for the oppressed, but also you know basically a fundamental human right that did not depend on the color of your skin or your status, but basically on the simple basis of of manhood, and there forever uh, let it rest, and and I think that that to me is uh, an unsurpassed ideal of, of what free speech should be like. So your rights to speech should not depend on your color or your religion or your uh, ethnicity. Of course, context can always play into when the, the right to free speech does not mean that, that you should is so obvious, but does not mean you don't have the right to criticize it or that you should be in agreement with certain forms of speech. And context will always influence the way that we view and judge speech. And there, whatever status you belong to might influence the way we judge it. But it shouldn't sort of decide your, your right or the, the basic tolerance given to someone to be able to speak.
0: I'm struck by what you said about having a culture of free speech being the most important thing, that laws often are not enough. In the face of a culture that's hostile to free speech, what's written on pieces of paper may not matter all that much. And I think this is an important point because on paper, you know, our First Amendment prohibits the government from infringing on my speech or on the freedom of the press. But in every other institution, what really governs the day-to-day goings-on and our interactions are norms about free speech, just this sort of intangible element of culture. So when you're on a university campus, do people expect that I have veto power over someone that comes to speak here, over someone that's been invited to campus, right? That's a norm. Either people just understand that there's a norm of free speech or people have this expectation that I should be able to shout down a speaker that I hate and prevent them from speaking. At a company like Spotify, for instance, there are currently calls to censor Joe Joe Rogan's podcast over the perception that he's disseminated misinformation and and disinformation about COVID. And he's he's allowed guests on his podcast that are just saying untrue and, and harmful things. A lot of what happens there is going to be the result of what is the culture of employees at Spotify? What is the larger elite culture that those employees are inhabiting? And that's going to have a big effect on what ideas really enter into the culture. And I was struck by, in your book, you discussed the free speech culture of Athens, of ancient Athens, and how there was this distinction between sort of two types of speech, one being the formal free speech in the assembly. And that was called, I may be mispronouncing this, isagoria.
1: Isagoria, yeah. I'm not an expert on the, on the pronunciation, but yes, is, isagoria, yeah, equality of speech. And then
0: on the other hand, this there was this notion of sort of informal uninhibited speech, this wider norm of the expectation that you could talk about matters of import at the market with with random people. And that was... I don't know how to pronounce that either, but Parisia, something like that. Yeah,
1: Parisia, yeah.
0: So, you know, it struck me that even back then there was this understanding that there's a difference between the formal allowance legally of free speech in a political context and a wider cultural norm of free speech. And um, I think this is important because sometimes people will use the fact that we have a First Amendment as a reason to poo-poo concerns about free speech in the culture. Uh, so, can you talk a little bit about that distinction historically and and maybe today?
1: Yeah, sure. I completely um, agree with you. Uh, on, I, I think the Athenian origins of free speech of uh, sort of what I see as the origins, at least, of egalitarian free speech, which has been clashing and still clashes with a more elitist free speech concept, which was more prominent in, in Republican Rome. But you see that and, you you know, you can actually, you can get a flavor of it both in Pericles, the famous Athenian statesman, his famous funeral oration. He, he talks about this culture of tolerance among Athenians, even if people say something, do something that you don't agree with. They're allowed to do that. And also that they discuss matters of public concern before resorting to action. Of course, it's an idealized picture of of Athens. Things were not always rosy, as Socrates would find out. But that ideal, I think, is incredibly important. And you actually see it because for a long time, you know, the Athenian democracy was really not seen as as an ideal at all, even by many Enlightenment uh, thinkers. So when egalitarian free speech sort of made a, a breakthrough, there was sort of a beginning to, to sort of highlight this uh, Athenian egalitarian ideal. For instance, a British radical called George Grode, who was very close to James and John Stuart Mill. And you see it in On Liberty. So in On Liberty, John Stuart Mill talks about, he says that, you know, in order to protect free speech, it's not, it's not sufficient to protect against the actions of the magistrate. You also need some level of protection against society's tendency to impose its views on on those who dissent. and there he's talking about the sort of very conservative Victorian norms of 19th century England which were which he found uh, stifling for his ideals. So I think that's absolutely true and I think you know um, so so in the US today you see that there's a shift among younger Americans and and more, progressive liberal uh, Ameri- Americans who are less tolerant of racist speech. So out of good intentions, you could say, out of a concern, which I think is an important and worthwhile concern, you know, the to do something uh, about racial inequality and uh, racism. So previously, Americans would, younger Americans and, and more progressive liberal Americans would say, in order to combat racism, we have to tolerate racist speech because free speech is an important idea for that. So that tolerance is dropping. And if that goes on, I would imagine that uh, at some point you will have Supreme Court justices who are influenced by those ideas and who would no longer uphold uh, the First Amendment's current level of protection, which, uh, and, and that, of course, is also really important, is a creature of the 20th century, even though the First Amendment, the wording of the First Amendment hasn't changed. The, the the legal protection interpretation of it has changed dramatically. So there, there used to be a time where, so if you go to 1830s, you could go to Southern states and you could have death penalty for disseminating abolitionist literature, for instance. And you would have laws that said, you know, you can't teach blacks and especially not slaves to read. That would be an abolitionist act in, in and of itself. You could have such kind of laws in a state like Virginia, which in 1776 became, you know, adopted the first state bill of rights, which protected free speech. So American history is full of examples of Milton's curse, where specific conceptions of free speech were advanced by specific groups of people who thought it to their advantage, but who thought specific ideas were too harmful to be allowed. And you see it even with the founding generation, you see it in 1798 with the Sedition Act, adopted by the John Adams, well, by the Federalists to protect the John Adams administration. And you have this split between sort of Federalists like Adams, like Hamilton, and on the other hand, uh, Madison and Jefferson, who were who are very critical of the Sedition Act. So, But if that generation who had fought for independence, American independence, and who had you know, really bashed the British for their seditious libel laws that they saw as, as slavery, you know, if they can then suddenly turn around and say, oh... By the way, the First Amendment does not actually allow you to poke fun of John Adams and you should go to jail, if, even if you're a journalist or or a politician. A congressman has happened. That should tell you something about the need for a culture of free speech to be really robust. And, you know, go to 1990s, 1920s, where you had... You know, people, socialist, peace activists who were critical of American involvement in World War I, who were sentenced to 10 and 20 years in prison for opposing the draft and opposing American involvement in World War One. You know, today we'd say that's insane. You know, that's an authoritarian state that sent politicians and peace activists in prison for peacefully opposing their government's policies. But that was, you know, that was a reality of, of the First Amendment at the time, which, which didn't really mean that much. So obviously, the culture of free speech needed to change in order for the f- First Amendment to really be given the full meaning that it has today. And I think one of the beautiful things about that is that the civil rights movement played such an important role in expanding the, the protection of the First Amendment by winning a, a number of sort of landmark cases uh, from the late 50s and, and into the 60s. And, and I think that is a very good example of why I think sort of this progressive liberal tendency to sort of say, you know, free speech is now being weaponized against minorities and, and democracies is, is a very, very dangerous tendency.
0: Is it true that the common sort of anti free speech argument that there are limits to free speech such as that you can't yell fire in a crowded theater doesn't that actually come from the case you just cited of
1: yeah no yeah, it's anti- it's it was Oliver Wendell Holmes who was initially terrible on on free speech but then then changed his mind but he basically yeah he used it to sort of justify why you could actually punish, I think it was sort of uh, pamphlets or leaflets posing uh, American uh, involvement in, in, in World War One, why that could be punished without the protection of the First Amendment. So he would change his mind. But I think that's one of the worst tropes, sort of uh, yelling fire in a, in a crowded theater, and, and one that I see a lot of uh, American First Amendment experts that I that I re- respect sort of pulling out their hair every time it's it's being used. But it, it's also amazing to me how often it's being used, like in eds, like in really serious publications, how often it's just, just sort of the go-to argument whenever you want to argue for whatever kind of speech that you don't like should be outside the protection of First Amendment, you, you pull out uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes and shouting fire in a crowded theater, and that really should just be uh, retired.
0: Yeah, and um, I guess there, there's a lot of things we could talk about here. A lot of areas where free speech is showing up as a flashpoint in the culture, there is, you know, social media and big tech companies sort of censoring articles, sometimes censoring certain viewpoints, generally with a a left-wing bias in the case of Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, so forth. There are lawmakers on the right attempting to ban critical race theory from being taught or what they call critical race theory. Um, from being taught in public schools. And um, there's the perpetual problem of, well, not so perpetual, but certainly in the past 10 years, the problem of speakers being disinvited from campuses. And sort of looming over all of these is the question of censorship, whether cens- censorship is always wrong, whether censorship even works to begin with. And I guess that I want to zero in on that second question. And this relates to another common sort of free speech argument from history, which is, you know, if we had only censored Hitler and the Nazis in Weimar Germany, we might have prevented their rise. As you talk a little bit about in the book, there were many attempts actually to, to censor Hitler, which sort of implies that censorship in that case did not work and perhaps backfired. On the other hand, there are examples from history and from your book where it seems censor- censorship did work you know, like the sort of the censorship of non-Christian ideas during the Roman Empire led certain sects really to to die out. And so I guess there's, there's this argument that censorship is bad because it doesn't work. It never works. And then there's this sort of other contradictory argument that censorship is bad precisely because it does sometimes work and it might be used to censor ideas that that are good. So can you talk a little bit, from a historical perspective about the question of does censorship actually work?
1: That's a very good question. And I think, I I don't think you can give a clear uh, answer. Go back and and ask the Athenians that voted to execute uh, Socrates, whether that was a an efficient way to uh, to kill his ideas, and I think uh, if they could be transported, they could be revived and, and transported into our time. They would they would probably agree that uh, it backfired spectacularly. You could say the same about the ideas of Jesus. That even though he was he, he was executed for his beliefs, that certainly did not. Even though the Romans tried and s- several outbreaks of persecution, that did not succeed in killing off Christianity. But then you have all kinds of other sects that we some of them we 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 don't even know of today that were actually successfully stamped out. And I think the problem with censorship in democracies, you know, democracies must necessarily recognize free speech as a fundamental value. Then, you know, you can have differences like between European democracies and, and America about how strong should the legal protection of free speech be. But basically all Liberal democracies must be committed to to free speech as a as a fundamental value. Otherwise, free uh, democracy would be meaningless. But oftentimes, I find that you know, if you really want to stamp out ideas, then it becomes difficult to do so in democracies through through legal uh, means. You need to be China to be really ruthless. If you really really want to crack down on ideas, you can't really just open up uh, concentration camps and then uh, send uh, 100,000 people with the wrong ideas uh, into concentration camps in democracies that's the optics of that are not good and you know you need a very flexible constitution uh, to do that so very often i would say that censorship tends to backfire in democracies but obviously not always I mean, you know you, you there were there were for long, take for instance, the early social democratic labor movements. They were kept from power in many European countries through repression and censorship until they couldn't be kept down anymore so you could argue that censorship of that prolonged the the period until sort of social democratic parties were allowed to contest the democratic elections and you could say this certainly say the same with the uh, racial segregation in in the US so i i think i have a a law from 1910 or 1920 or something i think i maybe from louisiana or something in the book, which prohibits sort of teaching racial equality uh, or something to that effect. would be difficult to argue that censorship and repression of racial equality, of the ideas of civil rights and equality did not contribute to the prolongation of Jim Crow and and racial inequality in, in the U.S. But again, ultimately, it was unsuccessful. And the idea of free speech contributed to defeating the legal entrenchment of racial equality. So that's sort of a very waffled way of saying, I don't think I can give you a clear answer of whether censorship, well, I think it, it depends. But I think democracies are particularly, it's particularly tricky for democracies to have efficient censorship policies, and especially now in, in our digital age. So yes, you know, you can adopt laws as, as we're doing in Europe, which says that, Facebook and, and social media platforms have to remove illegal content within 24 hours or face huge fines. And then, yes, yeah, sure, they'll, they'll remove a lot of stuff, most of it legal probably. But then you have Telegram and you have all kinds of other uh, platforms, which makes it an e- eternal game of cat and mouse. And what you also see is the, the martyr effect, persecuting someone for their speech, is something which not only brings a lot of attention to those who were being persecuted or punished, but might actually sort of make them heroes to those who share their viewpoint. So one of the most pernicious examples of that is Julius Streicher, who was... uh, a fanatical uh, Nazi anti-Semitic editor of the Stürmer, sort of the worst nazi rag paper in Germany. So in 1929, he was sentenced to two months in prison for sort of anti-Semitic blood libels in the Stürmer, And so he was greeted by his supporters. And so less than a year later in Nuremberg, the, his hometown where he was convicted, the Nazis sort of doubled or trebled their, their votes. So that did not suggest that the persecution of, uh, of Nazi ideas was helpful. In fact, it might actually have given more attention and given sort of been a, seen as a badge of honor for those who had already supportive of the Nazis and who saw the Weimar Republic as being fundamentally illegitimate. And, you know, it, it also played into sort of the whole idea that the Jews were sort of pulling the strings and trying to silence patriotic Germans. So I think there are a lot of examples uh, like that throughout history. But again, of course, there are also those whose ideas are no longer uh, among us. How many great philosophers or potential big religions have we been robbed of because their authors were, were killed or and their books burned? Uh, there's no way of knowing.
0: Yeah, so it strikes me that there is a huge survivorship bias to the that would favor the idea that censorship doesn't work, right? It's like we only know about the ideas and ideologies that we know about and we're more attuned to the ones that have survived, many of which have experienced censorship. Like we're, we're not necessarily including in the calculus all of the ideas that potentially have been killed because how, how could we even
1: know about them? Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, there have just been also so many strange Christian sects and some of them have just been persecuted into extinction and also various philosophical directions. And, and, you know, would they have survived? Maybe maybe it was a combination of censorship and just the fact that they didn't have wide appeal, that they lost the battle of ideas to competing sex, you know, but that's probably mm-hmm. difficult to, to know. But there are certainly those who have borne the brunt of very serious persecution that, that helps stamp out these ideas that I think is for certain.
0: So I want to talk about censorship as it relates to social media and big tech tech companies today obviously Trump was banned from Twitter you know the president of the United States was was banned from what ended up being his primary form of communication with his base and with America at large and after being banned from Twitter I'm not aware of any comparable megaphone that Trump has I mean he obviously what Trump says is still going to make its way to the American population for better and for worse. But even though this is Twitter is just one private company, the fact that he was banned from it, which is totally legal and in line with their policies and terms of service, it's not as if there is some competitor that Trump can just switch to and get precisely or anything close to like what he had as a Twitter user, right? He can't just have a thought and immediately have, you know, 50 million people see his thought so what's interesting to me here is that because of the network effects of these big tech companies they may not be technical monopolies but they're far far closer to monopolies than to non-monopolies to just like they're not sectors where we have no monopoly concerns let's put it that way and that's inherent to anything that any any company that can benefit from a huge network effect like like Facebook or Twitter I start an equally good Facebook, it doesn't matter because everyone's already on Facebook and most of what makes it good is precisely the fact that other people are on it. So does that at all sort of change the calculus here? Like, you know, a private company can just kick you off. I get that. But as it approaches a monopoly, our precedent has been to treat it more and more like a phone line and say you just have to respect the norm of free speech here. So how do you think about that?
1: Yeah, that's a super uh, uh, good question. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense to, from a legal point of view, from a constitutional point of view at least, say the First Amendment should not apply to Facebook and Twitter, should not uphold the First Amendment. I think uh, it, it makes good sense to make that fundamental distinction between a private company and the state, but it's tried being a politician or someone today trying to reach an audience and you're most likely not going to be very successful if you're not on various social media platforms. So obviously the practical exercise of free speech, global parousia, it takes place, uh, is exercised on social media platforms. And this is where probably someone uh, like John Stuart Mill would say, Well, it might be very well that we have strong uh, protections of free speech in in human rights and constitutional values. But if we have these platforms that are able to basically regulate global debates and the the sharing of information and opinion at will, then uh, free speech, the culture of free speech is being undermined. And I I tend to uh, agree with that. I don't know what their biases are. The platforms. I think I wrote something in the book, which I was quite happy with, where I, I sort of speculate and and say that whichever group has has their grievances can can cherry pick examples of being censored by these uh, platforms, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and so on. And I think that they are mostly sort of operating on the basis of outbreaks of shitstorms, basically reacting to them and then trying to. And then trying to change their terms and their um, uh, specific content moderation based on what the media picks up or this uh, instance of, of something that could not be, they could not defend in the abstract over the specific controversy. And that just makes for really, really bad community terms and bad enforcement uh, of these. I also have to think, say that I don't think there's any perfect or way just because we have these huge centralized platforms. so. I think one way of ameliorating the situation would be a more decentralized social media ecosystem that would probably require technological uh, solutions. It might be antitrust laws. I'm not an expert on that. Uh, More than it would sort of be regulating speech uh, and content the way European countries are are doing uh, now, which, which I think has tremendously bad effects for for free speech of of uh, of users uh, I think if we had a more decentralized social media system then the the content moderation decisions of one platform would not matter as much you know it's like the the days of the blockosphere we were not on these huge platforms of so a very successful block might have a couple of hundred thousand readers but if you got thrown off that that would not sort of to the same degree impact your ability to access and share information online to the same extent that if you're being kicked off uh, Facebook which which is really uh, has and Twitter which, which which is really bad for you and i think you know i thought it was interesting when trump was thrown off i agreed with the initial decision i thought that the way he behaved as the the riot was unfolding i thought that justified them sort of suspending his account at, at that point because at that point there was a real and immediate danger to the peaceful transfer of of, of power in America, but sort of an indefinite suspension of his account, like the Facebook Oversight Board said, I thought was going too far. And it was quite interesting to me that Alex Navalny, the Russian dissident or critic of, of Putin, actually also highlighted and said, don't celebrate this as a victory of democracy, because this is something that all uh, illiberal authoritarian states will use as a president for cracking down on, on people they, they don't like, or sort of forcing social media platforms to do that. And unfortunately, We see that a lot. We see that laws adopted by democracies are being used by by authoritarian states to draft internet censorship laws that they then use to pressure these platforms to to censor content. Something that would also be very useful is if users were to a a much larger degree than today could use filters to themselves. So you and I, you know, we often in, in free speech, there's a tendency to sort of uh, poke fun of those who were who are being offended. But, you know, I'm sure there are things that offend you, there, there are th- things that offend me, but you and I might have different ideas, different sensibilities uh, about what offenses. Uh The problem then is if Facebook has to cater to the whole world, then they have to set the bar somewhere. And that might appeal to a certain group's sensibilities of offense, but, but, not, uh, but not others. But if users themselves could use filters and say, you know, okay, I think there's too much misogyny on Facebook, for instance. Okay, then you could have a women's rights group that developed easily applicable filters that you could toggle on or off. And that would then censor a lot of words and terms that you yourself would find offensive, but it wouldn't uh, affect someone else's ability to engage in debates where some of these terms were used and where they didn't find them offensive. Or they maybe wanted to challenge those offensive terms because they thought that was uh, an important way to fight misogyny. And you could say the same thing for anti-Semitism, for instance. For instance, there are groups that fight anti-Semitism who have this idea that criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. And sometimes it is used by anti-Semites. But it not, it's not necessarily and inherently anti-Semitic Semitic to criticize Israel the same way you can criticize uh, any country for 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 policies that you disagree with. So should these groups that fight anti-Semitism should they be able to pressure Facebook or Twitter to say, oh, you have to censor criticism of Israel? I would think that was going way too far. But they could the Anti-Defamation League could develop a filter. That people who are sensitive to anti-Semitism and who don't want to be confronted with uh, criticism of of Israel can then use themselves. That would then not impact everyone, and I think that's a much smarter way to go about uh, creating an online environment where that is not centrally, where you don't have sort of centralized censorship of uh, of, of private platforms. Of course, there, there would be trade-offs. Uh, you would risk sort of creating certain filter bubbles and echo chambers where where you would only be confronted with with ideas that maybe you like, you would not get the full experience. That's
0: already happening.
1: Yeah, that's already happening. And, you know, there's also a reason why, you know, someone subscribes to The Wall Street Journal and someone subscribes to The New York Times, and that's because, you know, you prefer one uh, over the other. So so that's something that we do uh, ourselves today, or or you watch Fox or you watch MSNBC. So I think that's a more appealing way to achieve sort of global paresia in the digital world than sort of saying that platforms should be bound by the First Amendment, for instance.
0: It's possible that Web 3.0 and crypto, at least uh, the the optimistic version of what it could promise, could be something like, a more decentralized internet that would sort of lend itself to this kind of norm.
1: Sure. That's, I'm not a tech bro. So, but, but that's certainly, uh, that's certainly a lot of of the talk uh, and and there are a thousand startups working on on various projects. So I'm hopeful that this will be part of the part of the solution. But I think, you know, we just also just have to recognize that we're sort of living at a very special time uh, in the sense that the digital world is quite new uh, even though, you know, the the Internet and social media is second nature to 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 all of us and it's deeply in- integrated and embedded in our daily lives. It's a quite a recent, um, you know, looked through the lens of history, a recent uh, development. And if you look at the disruptive na- uh, effects of the printing press, that took a long time. The explosive mix of the of the printing press and, and the reformation. So the disruptive effects of that would uh, reverberate for 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 centuries before uh, a, a certain stability was achieved in, in Europe. And there were certainly very violent outcomes uh, of that. And I think we're likely to see more disruptions and instability before we sort of find new ways to navigate the more digital world. Also, just because our I don't think our media system our political system our institutions are not you know they were built in a different age Responding to different age, a more analog age than than the one we're living in uh, now, and so we have to basically create a new culture, and, and that takes time before we find some uh, models of, of living in this more uh, digital world. And, and and unfortunately, I think uh, the process is is likely to be ugly and and disruptive. But that's just, I think, to a large degree unavoidable. I don't think you could sort of, I don't think you can turn back the time and then say, oh, we don't uh, we don't want to, you know, get us off. I try to argue that this was something that the um, in the Ottoman Empire, the rulers there shunned the printing press. We don't know exactly why they did it, but they basically did it probably for religious reasons, but maybe also to avoid the disruption that they saw. In Christendom, and you know, if you were watching what happened in Christendom with with uh, with the Reformation and the Wars of Religion and so on, you might say, "Oh, that was a very smart move to sort of shun the printing press." You know, see what all kinds of crazy ideas are giving rise to to disruptions, war, and and hatred, and so on. But then now you would say it, it was a huge mistake because of the compound knowledge that that, that sort of helped grow Europe's collective brain uh, through the printing press, despite. All the disruption and religious wars and so on, I think that the, the printing press was a was an agent of change that you know at least from our vantage point uh, brought a lot uh, of good uh, things, even if it, if it proved disruptive to religious and, and political authority
0: yeah that's a really fascinating sort of dilemma It's a fascinating moral dilemma because the advent of the printing press pretty plausibly caused the deaths of thousands and thousands of people, at least indirectly by just unsettling faith in in the Catholic church, uh, allowing people to just publish all kinds of new ideas, allowing the Bible to be mass produced and translated very quickly. And that created an enormous amount of turbulence and just absolute bloodshed. You know, there would have been a very compelling argument to make at the time that the printing press has just destroyed our society. You could have just pointing to the body count and the relative stability before the pr- printing press as, as a really good case. And yet now we all take for granted that the printing press was, you know, sort of the beginning of modernity and the precursor to the enlightenment and the scientific revolution. And we're all grateful that we we were born today rather than in, in the year 1300. But um, a lot of people paid the price for that societal disruption. And there is an interesting potential analogy to be drawn there with the internet. If only the fact that we, it's going to take more time to adapt to this fundamental change in information sharing. And the fact we haven't figured it out yet is to be expected.
1: And, um, but it's also deeply unsatisfying to the human mind, uh, because we want, fast solutions and and we want answers, especially in the digital age. You know, we're not sort of accustomed to saying, oh, you know, by the time my grandchildren are about to retire, we'll have figured this all out. And, you know, Things will be looking up. That's not something that most people think in terms of. Of course, understandable. And also, you know, there'll be winners and losers. Uh, some, uh, you know, it'll probably be difficult to say who will be the winners and losers in the in the long term. But 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 certainly there are winners uh, and losers, just as there was with the with the printing press. If you were sort of a well paid scribe, it was not particularly cool to uh, that suddenly you could. You just uh print books uh, that uh, previously could fetch you uh, a lot of money and you know if you were a ruler it wasn't great that suddenly people could uh, could share ideas that undermined the very ideas on uh, upon which your your rule was based but again you know you could you could you could try and, and look at the world and today and then say okay if we sort of how successful would a country be if you just shut down the internet in a country you know uh, could you operate a country successfully without any uh, internet access, you know, or or try running a business or a university uh, without internet, you know, that I think you would very quickly find out the cost of, of being outside sort of the uh, the information uh, loop. So uh, I think through optimistic glasses, uh, we, we might look back and say, oh, you know, th- you, there were all these sort of... Uh, Luddites who were against uh, who were against the internet and, and social media and thought that everything went, would would go to hell uh, and look at how great uh, things are uh, here today in in the year twenty two thousand two hundred. That's my hope. Uh, of course, it could it could go could go in the other direction, um, but but I think that overall, when we look at the history of free speech, I think it has been an overwhelming force for for good and really the most essential principle and freedom, at least in societies that are committed to democratic uh, values and individual freedom, rule of law, and, and so on. I, I think it's, it is the most essential uh, freedom to base your society on.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about cancel culture, which, which I view as the, the opposite of a culture of free speech, basically. It's, it's the opposite of the, that second Greek word that I can't pronounce. But the parousia. Yeah. Yes, it's the, the opposite of parousia. And uh, many people have pointed out rightly that cancel culture is not fundamentally new. It's actually just in many ways been the norm in most societies that we know of, as you can, as people can read about in your book. I, mean, I know Tanahashi Coates wrote an op-ed for the New York Times maybe two years ago or so, where he basically said cancel culture isn't bad because it's not new. And he cited the example of of the Salem witch trials as cancel culture. The obvious retort to this was, don't we look back on the Salem witch trials as a bad thing that we don't want to emulate, e- even if it's less violent nowadays and more about getting people fired or deplatformed? Presumably, if it was bad then, it's it's bad now, or at least one would want to be consistent. So... I certainly agree cancel culture is not a a fundamentally new phenomenon, but there is the fact of internet, the internet and social media has made it such that a normal person can make a Facebook status or send a tweet or be filmed in public out of context saying something and that can be viewed by a million people and they can be fired from their job and, you know, have to flee the country in some cases the next day. And I, I think this happens, the right and the left do this, you know, that there's, but they don't do it, I think, to the same extent. There's a, there's a great book by, um, oh, I always forget his name, but, uh, uh, so you've been publicly shamed by John Ronson. That's yeah. And you know, he, he just, Catalogues all these examples. The book is a little bit old now. I don't know if it's maybe 10 years old, but all these examples of just normal people whose cancellation was only possible in the age of social media and the internet. And most of these are canceled by the cultural left, but many of these are also canceled by the cultural right. And, you know, people who burned an American flag or peed on an American flag or, and, and just got the right wing mob sent after them. So one one question I have here is is, is cancel culture simply haggling over the sort of boundary that we all have around speech, or is there really a disagreement in principle? In in other words, is it that we're all okay with firing an actual Nazi and now people want to draw that line closer and closer? Such that you know being against affirmative action is just in the category of cancelable speech, or is it that there is really a disagreement over the principle that you should be able to say and and believe anything uh, without getting fired or or getting an internet mob sort of thrust your way?
1: Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think give a boring answer in that I think sometimes it's contextual, and I think it's also important to be precise because. Some of the criticism of cancel culture, for instance, it's not cancel culture that, you know, your pitch to the New York Times was not accepted. Uh, It's happened to me many times. I don't (laughs) think it's a I don't think it's a a, a violation of of the culture of free speech, nor, of course, is criticism, uh, even vehement criticism, cancel culture. I mean, obviously, you have to you know, if you participate in the public debate, you have to be able to to suffer that people vehemently disagree with you and are going to tell you in sometimes not very pleasant language but then there's the situation where and i think this is particularly worrying when it comes to institutions that really could not function without free speech here i'm i'm thinking about colleges and universities you know where free speech in the shape of academic freedom you know it it would be meaningless to have a college or a university without uh, academic freedom the media, and also you know, it could also be sort of museums and 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 so on, where where I think cancel culture or whatever you want to call it has become a a real issue where where where, where basically people try to police thought not by engaging in criticism of the idea, even you know, and it, it could be snarky criticism. It can be the use of straw men and and bad, and, and and bad faith argument. That's still an exercise of free speech. And that's, you know, that's part and and, and parcel of the culture uh, of free speech. But I think you transgress a boundary that undermines the culture of free speech if your response to someone whose political ideas you don't like is that that person should not be allowed to speak at a university or should not be be a university professor or should not be, you know, (laughs) Uh, uh, should lose their, their 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 livelihood, and I think you're right that the internet has and social media has sort of made it easier to try and have people cancelled. Uh, so so that even though they have these platforms that allow them to to criticize ideas, they try to use them to basically cancel people. I think one of the problems again is that we still have this fascination with social media, so we fret and think endlessly about what people write on Twitter and Facebook. And I think, you know, it's something that I really wanted to have in the book, but I I didn't have the space for it, is I think that the Stoics had some great ideas about insults that are really, really useful to today's social media environment. Uh, So so Stoics like Seneca, for instance. So basically training yourself not to to have a more detached attitude to what people might say about you. And also, so it, it could be from ignoring them. It could be to sort of laugh at yourself when people try to mock you. And I think if we develop, and this is something that I'm hopeful we'll do when when the novelty of social media has sort of worn off, hopefully soon, that we'll have a more detached attitude to whatever goes on. And we'll, we won't treat it as something that is deeply consequential. What someone wrote on Twitter, and we'll say, "Oh, yeah, okay, so whatever." So we'll maybe discriminate a bit more about what we'll attach weight to of the you know, you know endless uh, comments and and tweets uh, and, uh, and 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 so on. Online, I think there's really a lot for, for, for modern digital netizens to gain from, from looking at Stoic philosophy when it comes to to how to treat, how to think about insults. So that could be one starting point. But of course, you know, some of those, if we, if we talk about people on the cultural left, for instance, I think one of the iconic examples of early cancel culture is Frederick Douglass, who's about to give a speech uh, at an abolitionist meeting in, in Boston in 1860. And so you have a lot of white Bostonians, well-to-do Bostonians, who don't like abolitionist meetings because they threaten the union, you know, the national unity, uh, it, 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 and and also their commercial interest in the South. So when when Frederick Douglass gets on stage, the meeting is disrupted by these white Bostonians who uh, who heckle and disrupt the meeting, and so it can, you know it'll have to be stopped. And 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 the mayor of Boston doesn't do anything to stop it. And that causes Frederick Douglass to write uh, one of my favorite texts on free speech, called "A Plea for Free Speech in Boston." It's quite short, but it's it's really really strong and powerful, I think. Um, and and where he argues, along with the, with others, that that this is the violation of free, you know his not only were these hecklers robbed, uh him and others of their right to to speak, but but they also robbed people. Of of the right to listen to, to to listen to arguments, and so this was a a, a double uh, a wrong. And I think he he made some really compelling arguments that I and I don't think you know those who tried to get people canceled for supposedly racist viewpoints would look at what happened to Frederick Douglass back in 1860 and say, oh, that's not that, that you know. Uh, that's unproblematic. It doesn't have anything to do with free speech. That's fine. You know, that's just uh, the 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 way it, it goes. So, and and if you can't, you know, if if you think that what happened back then was an when it was an instance of indefensible cancel culture, then the, it, it's very likely that uh, something similar going on. With with people whose ideas you don't like uh, in in 2022 uh, is also an indefensible act of uh, cancel culture. And and actually we've also seen it uh, in the early in the early 20th century where at American elite universities um, radicals, sort of political left wing radicals, were 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 being cancelled at Harvard and, and other places because they had had, had spo- said and spoken things that were seen as as outside what was a political uh, orthodoxy. So at that time, it was very much sort of more conservative impulses that led to, to cancel culture. And again, if you look at that and say, oh, uh, it's indefensible when uh, a bunch of well-to-do students at Harvard try to get an instructor fired for being a socialist, if you think that's an indefensible act of cancel culture. Well, then it's probably also an indefensible act of cancel culture if you try to get someone uh, fired for believing or being uh, against abortion or, or whatever uh, is uh, provokes you.
0: Well, yeah, what they're going to say is obviously, well, the socialist professor wasn't evil. Whereas, you know, when they try to get Peter Boghossian fired or, or Charles Murray, when, when they try to keep Charles Murray from speaking, Well, those guys are wrong. So it's okay to do that to them. They're wrong and they're harmful. You know, it's it's just most people don't abstract away from the example of Frederick Douglass and the, the socialists during the McCarthy era, the civil rights activists whose only protection to speak in public, you know, people like Bayard Rustin and Martin Luther King, who were constantly under the accusation of being communists and Soviet spies and whose ability to speak was really just on, always on, on thin ice and only protected by a culture of free speech that, that sort of protected unpopular speech. People can abstract, many people can abstract away from those examples to a general principle that would also defend a professor like Peter Bogosian or a writer like Charles Murray. And that's the problem. And
1: uh, the problem, with, and and the problem is that in in a country like the U.S., where there's a lot of political polarization and, and tribalism, what is considered evil, uh, you know, it, it differs fundamentally between between the the, the different uh, tribes that are at loggerheads and so 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 one tribe's most sacred uh, values are are seen as anathema by the other and that the problem with that is that then you you risk getting to a place where where the culture of free speech is undermined and which which will then translate into legal norms and where whenever a majority is in power will then say well we need to ensure that you know our ideas are protected, and that we uh, and and that we censor those of the other side, because when they get to power, they're going to do it to us because we no longer have principles, and, and that's a dangerous uh, that that's a that's a dangerous sort of race to the gutter, if you like.
0: Yeah. So there there's one other topic I I wanted to talk about, and um, this is sort of back on the topic of big tech and censorship. Which is the the role of artificial intelligence and uh, the the censorship AIs that are already really governing a lot of social media right now? There's this wider argument about whether artificial intelligence is going to destroy the world or uh, you know create a utopia, uh, become too powerful, or whether it'll it'll just uh, whether it will surpass us or not. But what I see right now going on, on, on YouTube and Instagram and Twitter is that there are some, there's some kind of algorithm for detecting quote unquote hate speech. And it's really bad. Like it's, it's a dumb algorithm. It's an algorithm that is like dumber than your average, you know, like 13 or 12 year old human being, I would say. Um, you know, and you know, one example is the one of the most popular chess YouTube uh, YouTubers named Agadmator. He he just summarizes chess videos, uh, chess games. And one time he got banned, or or a video got banned because he said the phrase "Okay after after Bishop C4, White is better." And the phrase "White is better" This was taken as white supremacy by something. And you know, I, I've had a tweet banned because I was quoting someone who criticized me as, as saying, I was just saying shit for white people, right? I just quoted that sentence and that was flagged as hate speech. It's like, makes no sense, but it's, it, it must just be an algorithm that is just really poor at, at sort of detecting, but this has consequences because people's posts get taken down and hopefully the mistakes get corrected. Uh, but they don't always. And, uh, it's it's uh, it's.
1: In fact, if you go to if you go to Facebook's enforcement reports, you can see the the amount of content the, the number of of pieces of content that they remove under their hate speech policy, and you can actually also see the percentage of the of of, of these pieces of content that were detected by automated content moderation. And maybe also removed before uh, any complaint. And 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 you know, I think in 2017 or 2018, it was something like 35. percent Now it's almost like 99. Mm. So they, so so these big platforms rely increasingly on automated content moderation. And you know, you can understand why, because you know, you're not going to be able to hire enough human content moderators to be able to to content moderate a platform with 2.7 billion people. And also just the pressure from, from, for instance, in, in Europe, governments that, uh, that require you to remove. So if you face a fine of up to 50 million euros, if you don't remove manifestly illegal content within 24 hours, as is the law in Germany, what's your incentive as Facebook? Your incentive will be to have as wide and flexible a definition of uh, hate speech, for instance, as possible. And then just have your automated content moderation remove that, and then w- with a sa- better safe than sorry uh, policy. So uh, one thing is the AI may not always be good in English, but but at least you know you know it's it's trained all the time by billions of pieces of content in in English. But if your AI is 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 being developed in a a country with a small uh, not very well-known language, then the AI is going to be much much worse. So so that has even steeper consequences in countries where, where, where with the languages that are not as common as as English. So so I, I completely agree that this is a, a, a huge issue. Though I don't I don't know how these platforms would content moderate without automation. I think that's you know if you want to be big and have hundreds of millions or, or even billions of users, then that's probably the only way they can do it, especially when they're being when when, when legal obligations are being imposed on them. but but you have, you know my organization we did a report where we looked at deleted comments on the on five media Facebook pages here in Denmark and uh, it, we found that 5.5 percent of comments were being deleted and but only 1.1 percent of the deleted comments were actually in violation of Danish law. So the vast majority of the of the deleted comments were perfectly legal, but still uh, removed, whether by Facebook or or, or users uh, and so on. And and I think that that is the the general picture that the vast majority of content removed were under hate speech, for instance, is content that is actually legal in the various states. But Facebook and Twitter and YouTube have just adopted uh, really broad definitions, so as to be to err on the Uh, on on the side of complying with the European hate speech laws, for instance. And, and, you know, the irony of that is from an American point of view, is that, you know, the internet, social media, Silicon Valley started out with these techno-utopian ideals that were informed by sort of civil libertarian First Amendment ideals. But today it's Europe, which is much more influential in setting uh, the limits for for online content by American uh, tech giants. So so you have sort of a a situation for Americans where you have a moderation without representation, uh, and where it's basically governments in in Berlin and or uh, the, the European Commission in Brussels that is very influential in in setting the limits what, of what you know you can say when you write something uh, in uh, in New York in in the U.S.
0: Yeah, and speaking of international. Relations here. There's the problem of China's China's restriction of free speech bleeding into companies that operate out of the West, and we saw this, you know, with uh, can an NBA basketball player talk about the treatment of Uyghurs? Like we pretty much know the answer to that question. And there's, you know, I know of like ten or fifteen other American or European owned countries that have changed that have really changed how they speak about issues, whether it's Taiwan or Hong Kong, simply because of the whims of the CCP. So, you know, and this, uh, I I just had Matt Iglesias on, on my podcast, who just wrote a book about how America is going to survive in the long run in international competition with China over sort of global soft hegemony. And this is increasingly an issue. It's, it's, already, it's already the case that American companies are limited about what they can say because China has such a large proportion of the global market. And also because the CCP has an ability to unilaterally sort of decide what their policy is towards certain ideas in a way that any American ruling party doesn't have. Because we're a free, freer country. So, how do you view the the threat of China's rise uh, to free speech?
1: Yeah, no, I I think that's uh, extremely important. You know, and and you're absolutely right that sort of um, Western tech companies are very much responding to Chinese digital sticks and carrots and sort of the initial civil libertarian ideals of of how. Uh, Silicon Valley would bring free speech to China. Uh, look, pretty naive by now, and 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 China has really, really. When we talk about censorship working, it's it, China is is maybe the best example of 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 a state where censorship really seems to to work, at least in the sense of, of keeping. The Chinese Communist Party in uh, in in control and limiting what can be uh, what can be said in 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 the Chinese public sphere. Of course, you know there's always going to be cracks in in the censorship. There will be certain strategies, but but it seems incredibly incredibly uh, orwellian uh, the uh, chinese uh, censorship and that's you know lenin supposedly said i, I don't think it's a, it's a genuine quote but he, he supposedly said something like to the effect that, that you know the capitalist will sell us the rope with which we'll hang him and you know i think there's there's a little bit of that in these uh, western tech companies who are you know so you had i think it was cisco who was basically part of of constructing the the the, the great firewall in in China, you, have, you had Google that was secretly working on developing a search engine to comply with the Chinese dictates and, you know, uh, money talks. So I think that is extremely, uh, I think that's extremely worrying. On the other hand, uh, I still think that free speech outside of China helps give a massive uh, sort of cultural advantage. I don't know that there are any country in the world that look at China and say, "Wow, I really this is what you know." They might want their growth rates. Uh, they might uh, have want to to alleviate poverty to the same degree that that China has has impressively achieved over a very short uh, amount of time. But I don't think a lot of people around the world are saying, "Wow, I really want that government. Uh, I I really want the same <laughs> uh, draconian uh, punishments." And 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 also, you know, just. When you when you the, the way that China responds to criticism in international relations is, is also just makes them seem so clumsy that they're sort of I think their propaganda game is really, really weak. And I think that's that, that's probably one of the reasons for that is that they're not accustomed to, to being confronted with uh, with criticism or satire or, or humor. And that just does not make you very appealing. Uh, but 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 there's no doubt that um that it's a huge challenge uh, you know just see what happened to hong kong from the crackdown on pro democracy movements in 2019 when when hong kong was still sort of a relatively free oasis to now where hong kong is is basically sort of a barren desert of of censorship which i think is is really tragic and that one of my hopes is of course that Taiwan will will continue to to prosper as a a free democracy because it's it's basically the best counter narrative to the Chinese uh, idea that sort of all free speech is just as Western value and it's incompatible with Chinese nature. Well, guess what? Taiwan is a thriving democracy with uh with with vibrant free speech and they're the same as you uh so so uh so so that's a huge middle finger in in the direction of mainland China but will taiwan be able to survive will will, will western democracies be willing to stand up for 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 taiwan uh that's uh, that's a huge that's a huge question but but I, but but you know when i see i think was it the owner of the golden state warrior who 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 in in an interview said something like he didn't really care about the persecution of Uyghurs in, uh, in, uh, you know, that is a huge propaganda victory for, 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 for China. And and that to me was just, no, that you don't even try to sort of engage in what a, what a boundary or say, you know, I can't comment on that, but you at flagrantly just say, that just does not register on the scale of important things that one million people are being detained in <laughs> concentration camps. That tells you something about the power of China through its uh, economy. And, and it, that will take a lot to withstand um, due to uh, the, the dynamic that, that Lenin may have described.
0: And hearkening back to what, what we were talking about at the very beginning of this conversation, he is, he is an example of someone who I'm going to have to hold my nose to protect his free speech. Because what he said about not caring about the 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 mistreatment of of Uyghurs in China is abhorrent to me. Like it, it it fills me like when I when I look at him, I get that feeling that I'm looking into the eyes of evil. And so he's the example of someone that I'm going to have to get over my emotional reaction to to what he said in order to remember that he has every bit as right uh, as much of a right to speak. Uh, as I do. And that, you know, if I, if I hate what he said, I should combat his speech with more speech.
1: So. Yeah, no, I felt the same way. It was, it was really deeply provocative. And, 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 you know, I sense it when, when there's something that really, really provokes me and where I really have to struggle with my principles, I get this sort of um, I can feel it sort of in in, in a vein on on my neck that is sort of throbbing uh, and, 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 and I feel this sort of chill and, and the top of my head, and that—that's when I know, okay, I really, I have to get it together uh, here because uh, my natural impulse is to be intolerant, <laughs> and and I, I got a, a bit of that feeling as well when I saw that uh, interview that you know this tech billionaire living the life in in Silicon Valley and then just uh, being completely indifferent uh, to to a totalitarian oppression that was that was disgusting.
0: Yeah. So on that note, I want to recommend everyone who's interested in this topic, read your book. It's really, really excellent and thorough. And there is probably didn't cover 90% of what's in there. So it's it's free speech from Socrates to social media. And um, if you could point my listeners in the direction of if you have a website or Twitter handle or anything like that,
1: yeah, so uh, my uh, my Twitter handle is at J J M C H A N G A M A, and you could also uh, visit my podcast uh, called Clear and Present Danger: A History of Free Speech. It's basically if you think the book is too light, uh, it's, a, it's a it's a forty-one episode podcast on the history of free speech that was sort of the, the basis uh, of the book. So if you want a the deep dive, that's uh, that's that's the go to.
0: Awesome. Well, this has been really fun for me. Thanks so much for coming on my show.
1: It was a pleasure. Thanks a lot.
0: If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, ColemanHughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.